Your listenership is so important to us. We really do hope you're enjoying the show. If you're able to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, it would be enormously helpful in allowing us to reach more people and help them get a good night's sleep. So is following us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any other podcast player that you use. Thank you so much for your support. Good evening. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the world's sleepiest podcast. I'm your host, Andrew. I'm here to help calm your mind and send you into a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading chapters 8 to 11 of The Light Princess by George MacDonald. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 8 Try a Drop of Water Perhaps the best thing for the princess would have been to fall in love, but how any princess who has had no gravity could fall into anything is a difficulty, perhaps the difficulty. As for her own feelings on the subject, she did not even know that there was such a beehive of honey and stings to be fallen into. But now I come to mention other curious facts about her. The palace was built on the shores of the loveliest lake in the world and the princess loved this lake more than father or mother. The root of this preference, no doubt, although the princess did not recognize it as such, was that the moment she got into it, she recovered the natural right of which she had been so wickedly deprived, namely gravity. Whether this was owing to the fact that water had been employed as the means of conveying the injury, I do not know. But it is certain that she could swim and dive like the duck that her old nurse said she was. The manner in which this alleviation of her misfortune was discovered was as follows. One summer evening, during the carnival of the country, she had been taken upon the lake by the king and queen in the royal barge. They were accompanied by many of the courtiers in a fleet of little boats. In the middle of the lake she wanted to get into the Lord Chancellor's barge, for his daughter 
who was a great favourite with her, was in it with her father. Now though the old king rarely condescended to make light of his misfortune, yet happening on this occasion to be in a particularly good humour, as the barges approached each other, he caught up the princess to throw her into the chancellor's barge. He lost his balance, however, and, dropping into the bottom of the barge, lost hold of his daughter, not, however, before imparting to her the downward tendency of his own person, though in a somewhat different direction, for, as the king fell into the boat, she fell into the water. With a burst of delighted laughter, she disappeared in the lake, A cry of horror ascended from the boats. They had never seen the princess go down before. Half the men were underwater in a moment, but they had all, one after another, came up to the surface again for breath, when tinkle, tinkle, babble, and gush, came the princess's laugh over the water from far away. There she was, swimming like a swan, nor would she come out for king or queen, chancellor or daughter. She was perfectly obstinate. But at the same time, She seemed more sedate than usual. Perhaps that was because a great pleasure spoils laughing. At all events, after this, the passion of her life was to get into the water, and she was always the better behaved and more beautiful the more she had of it. Summer and winter it was quite the same, only she could not stay so long in the water when they had to break the ice to let her in. Any day, from morning till evening in the summer, she might be decried, a streak of white in the blue water, lying as still as the shadow of a cloud or shooting along like a dolphin, disappearing and coming up again far off, just where one did not expect her. She would have been in the lake of a night, too, if she could have had her way, for the balcony of her window overhung a deep pool in it and through a shallow reedy passage she could have swum out into the wide wet water, and no one would have been any the wiser. Indeed, when she happened to wake in the moonlight 
she could hardly resist the temptation. But there was the sad difficulty of getting into it. She had a great dread of the air as some children have of the water. The slightest gust of wind would blow her away, and a gust might arise in the stillest of moments. And if she gave herself a push towards the water and just failed off reaching it, her situation would be dreadfully awkward, irrespective of the wind, for at best there she would have to remain, suspended in her nightgown, till she was seen and angled for by someone from the window. Oh, if I had my gravity, thought she, contemplating the water, I would flash off this balcony like a long white seabird, headlong into the darling wetness. Hey ho! This was the only consideration that made her wish to be like other people. Another reason for her being fond of the water was that in it alone she enjoyed any freedom, for she could not walk out without a cottage, consisting in part of a troop of light horses for fear of the liberties which the wind might take with her. And the king grew more apprehensive with increasing years, till at last he would not allow her to walk abroad at all without some twenty silken cords, fastened to as many parts of her dress and held by twenty noblemen. Of course horseback was out of the question, but she bade goodbye to all this ceremony when she got into the water. And so remarkable were its effects upon her, especially in restoring her for the time to ordinary human gravity, that humdrum and copykeck agreed in recommending the king to bury her alive for three years, in the hope that, as the water did her so much good, the earth would do her yet more. But the king had some vulgar prejudices against the experiment, and would not give his consent. Foiled in this, they yet agreed in another recommendation, which, seeing that one imported his opinions from China and the other from Tibet, was very remarkable indeed. They argued that if water from external origin and application could be so efficacious, Water from a deeper source might work a perfect cure. In short, 
that if the poor afflicted princess could by any means be made to cry, she might recover her lost gravity. But how was this to be brought about? Therein lay all the difficulty, to meet which the philosophers were not wise enough. To make the princess cry was as impossible as to make her way. They sent for a professional beggar, commanded him to prepare his most touching oracle of woe, helped him out of the court charade box to whatever he wanted for dressing up, and promised great reward in the event of his success, but it was all in vain. She listened to the mendicant artist's story and gazed at his marvelous makeup till she could contain herself no longer and went into the most undignified contortions for relief, shrieking positively screeching with laughter. When she had a little recovered herself, she ordered her attendants to drive him away and not give him a single copper, whereupon his look of mortified discomfiture wrought her punishment and his revenge for it sent her into violent hysterics from which she was difficultly recovered. But so anxious was the king that the suggestion should have a fair trial, that he put himself in a rage one day, and, rushing up to her room, gave her an awful whipping. Yet not a tear would flow. She looked grave, and her laughing sounded uncommonly like screaming. That was all. The old tyrant, though he put on his best gold spectacles to look, could not discover the smallest cloud in the serene blue of her eyes. Chapter 9 Put Me In Again It must have been about this time that the son of a king, who lived a thousand miles from Lagobel, set out to look for the daughter of a queen. He travelled far and wide, But as sure as he found a princess, he found some fault with her. Of course he could not marry a mere woman, however beautiful, and there was no princess to be found worthy of him. Whether the prince was so near perfection that he had a right to demand perfection itself, I cannot pretend to say. All I know is 
that he was a fine, handsome, brave, generous, well-bred, and well-behaved youth, as all princes are. In his wanderings, he had come across some reports about our princess, but as everybody said she was bewitched, he never dreamed that she could bewitch him. For what indeed could a prince do with a princess that had lost her gravity? Who could tell what she might not lose next? She might lose her visibility, or her tangibility, or, in short, the power of making impressions upon the radical sensorium, so that he should never be able to tell whether she was dead or alive. Of course he made no further inquiries about her. One day he lost sight of his retinue in a great forest. These forests are very useful in delivering princes from their courtiers, like a sieve that keeps back the bran. Then the princes get away to follow their fortunes. In this way they have the advantage of the princesses, who are forced to marry before they have had a bit of fun. I wish our princesses got lost in a forest sometimes. One lovely evening, after wandering about for many days, he found that he was approaching the outskirts of this forest, for the trees had got so thin that he could see the sunset through them, and he soon came upon a kind of heath. Next he came upon signs of human neighbourhood, but by this time it was getting late, and there was nobody in the fields to direct him. After travelling for another hour, his horse quite worn out with long labour and lack of food, fell and was unable to rise again. So he continued his journey on foot. At length he entered another wood, not a wild forest, but a civilised wood, through which a footpath led him to the side of a lake. Along this path the prince pursued his way through the gathering darkness. Suddenly he paused and listened. Strange sounds came across the water. It was, in fact, the princess laughing. Now there was something odd in her laugh, as I have already hinted. For the hatching of a really hearty laugh requires the incubation of gravity, and perhaps this was how the prince mistook the laughter for screaming. 
Looking over the lake, he saw something white in the water, and in an instant he had torn off his tunic, kicked off his sandals, and plunged in. He soon reached the white object and found that it was a woman. There was not light enough to show that she was a princess, but quite enough to show that she was a lady, for it does not want much light to see that. Now I cannot tell how it came about, whether she pretended to be drowning, or whether he frightened her, or caught her so as to embarrass her, but certainly he brought her to the shore in a fashion ignominious to a swimmer, and more nearly drowned than she had ever expected to be, for the water had gone into her throat as often as she had tried to speak. At the place to which he bore her, the bank was only a foot or two above the water, so he gave her a strong lift out of the water to lay her on the bank. But her gravitation ceasing the moment she left the water, away she went up into the air, scolding and screaming, You naughty, 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 naughty man, she cried. No one had ever succeeded in putting her into a passion before. When the prince saw her ascend, he thought he must have been bewitched and have mistaken a great swan for a lady. But the princess caught hold of the topmost cone upon a lofty fir. This came off, but she caught another, and, in fact, stopped herself by gathering cones, dropping them as the stalks gave way. The prince, meantime, stood in the water, staring and forgetting to get out. The princess disappearing, he scrambled on shore and went in the direction of the tree. There he found her climbing down one of the branches towards the stem, but in the darkness of the wood, the prince continued in some bewilderment as to what the phenomenon could be, reaching the ground and seeing him standing there, she caught hold of him and said, I'll tell Papa. Oh no, you won't, returned the prince. Yes, I will, she persisted. What business had you to pull me down out of the water and throw me to the bottom of the air? I never did you any harm. Pardon me, I did not mean to hurt you. I don't believe you have any brains, and that is a worse loss than your wretched gravity. I pity you. 
The prince now saw that he had come upon the bewitched princess, and had already offended her. But before he could think what to say next, she burst out angrily, giving a stamp with her foot that would have sent her aloft again, but for the hold she had of his arm. Put me directly up. Put you up where, you beauty? asked the prince. He had fallen in love with her almost already, for her anger made her more charming than anyone else had ever beheld her, and, as far as he could see, which certainly was not far, she had not a single fault about her, except, of course, that she had not any gravity. No prince, however, would judge of a princess by weight. The loveliness of her foot he would hardly estimate by the depth of the impression it could make in mud. Put you up where, you beauty? asked the prince. In the water, you stupid, answered the princess. Come then, said the prince. The condition of her dress, increasing her usual difficulty in walking, compelled her to cling to him, and he could hardly persuade himself that he was not in a delightful dream, notwithstanding the torrent of musical abuse with which she overwhelmed him. The prince being therefore in no hurry, they came upon the lake at quite another part, where the bank was twenty-five feet high at least, and when they had reached the edge, he turned towards the princess and said, How am I to put you in? That is your business, she answered quite snappishly. You took me out. Put me in again. Very well, said the prince, and, catching her in his arms, he sprang with her from the rock. The princess had just time to give one delighted shriek of laughter before the water closed over them. When they came to the surface, she found that, For a moment or two, she could not even laugh, for she had gone down with such a rush that it was with difficulty she could recover her breath. The instant they reached the surface, How do you like falling in? said the prince. After some effort, the princess panted out, Is that what you call falling in? Yes, answered the prince. I should think it a very tolerable specimen. It seems to me like going up, rejoined she. My feeling was certainly one of elevation too, the prince conceded. The princess did not appear to understand him 
before she retorted his question. How do you like falling in? said the princess. Beyond everything, answered he, for I have fallen in with the only perfect creature I ever saw. No more of that, I am tired of it, said the princess. Perhaps she shared her father's aversion to punning. Don't you like falling in then? said the prince. It is the most delightful fun I ever had in my life, answered she. I never fell before. I wish I could learn. To think I am the only person in my father's kingdom that can't fall. Here the poor princess looked almost sad. I shall be most happy to fall in with you any time you like, said the prince devotedly. Thank you. I don't know. Perhaps it would not be proper, but I don't care. At all events as we have fallen in, let us have a swim together. With all my heart, responded the prince, and away they went, swimming and diving and floating, until at last they heard cries along the shore. The sore lights glancing in all directions. It was now quite late, and there was no moon. I must go home, said the princess. I am very sorry, for this is delightful. So am I, returned the prince, but I am glad I haven't a home to go to, at least I don't exactly know where it is. I wish I hadn't one either, rejoined the princess, it is so stupid, I have a great mind, she continued, to play them all a trick. Why couldn't they leave me alone? They won't trust me in the lake for a single night. You see where that green light is burning. That is the window of my room. Now if you would just swim there with me very quietly, and when we are all but under the balcony, give me such a push, up you call it, as you did a little while ago, I should be able to catch hold of the balcony and get in at the window, then they may look for me till morrow morning. With more obedience than pleasure, said the prince gallantly, and away they swam very gently. Will you be in the lake tomorrow night? The prince ventured to ask. To be sure I will, I don't think so. Perhaps, was the princess's somewhat strange answer. But the prince was intelligent enough not to press her further, and merely whispered as he gave her the parting lift. Don't tell. The only answer the princess returned 
was a roguish look. She was already a yard above his head. The look seemed to say, Never fear, it is too good fun to spoil that way. So perfectly like other people had she been in the water, that even yet the prince could scarcely believe his eyes when he saw her ascend slowly, grasp the balcony, and disappear through the window. He turned, almost expecting to see her still by his side, but he was alone in the water, so he swam away quietly and watched the lights roving about the shore for hours after the princess was safe in her chamber. As soon as they disappeared, he landed in search of his tunic and sword, and, after some trouble, found them again. Then he made the best of his way round the lake to the other side. There the wood was wilder, and the shore steeper rising, more immediately towards the mountains which surrounded the lake on all sides, and kept sending it messages of silvery streams from morning to night and all night long. He soon found a spot whence he could see the green light in the princess's room, and where, even in the broad daylight, he would be in no danger of being discovered from the opposite shore. It was a sort of cave in the rock, where he provided himself a bed of withered leaves, and lay down too tired for hunger to keep him awake. All night long he dreamed that he was swimming with the princess, Chapter 10 Look at the Moon Early the next morning the prince set out to look for something to eat, which he soon found at a forester's hut, where for many following days he was supplied with all that a brave prince could consider necessary and having plenty to keep him alive for the present, he would not think of what's not yet in existence. Whenever care intruded, this prince always bowed him out in the most princely way. When he returned from his breakfast to his watch cave, he saw the princess already floating around in the lake, attended by the king and queen whom he knew by their crowns, and a great company in lovely little boats, with canopies of all the colours of the rainbow, and flags and streamers of a great many more. It was a very bright day, and soon the prince, burned up with the heat, began to long for the cold water and the cool princess. But he had to endure till twilight, 
for the boat has provisions on board, and it was not till the sun went down that the gay party began to vanish. Boat after boat drew away to the shore, following that of the king and queen, till one, apparently the princess's own boat, remained. But she did not want to go home yet, and the prince thought he saw her order the boat to the shore without her. At all events, it rowed away, and now, of all the radiant company, only one white speck remained. Then the prince began to sing, and this is what he sung. Lady fair, swan white, lift thine eyes, banish night, by the might of thine eyes, snowy arms, oars of snow, o'er her hither, plashing low, soft and slow, o'er her hither, stream behind her, o'er the lake, radiant whiteness, in her wake, following, following for her sake, radiant whiteness clinging about her, waters blue part not from her, but renew, cold and true, kisses round her, lap me round, waters sad that have left her, make me glad for ye had kissed her ere ye left her. Before he had finished his song, the princess was just under the place where he sat and looked up to find him. Her ears had led her truly. Would you like a fall, princess? said the prince, looking down. Ah, there you are. Yes, if you please, prince, said the princess, looking up. How do you know I am a prince, princess, said the prince. Because you are a very nice young man, prince, said the princess. Come up then, princess. Fetch me, prince. The prince took off his scarf then his sword belt, then his tunic, and tied them all together and let them down. But the line was far too short. He unwound his turban and added it to the rest, when it was all but long enough, and his purse completed it. The princess just managed to lay hold of the knot of money, and was beside him in a moment. This rock was much higher than the other, and the splash and dye were tremendous. The princess was in ecstasies of delight, and their swim was delicious. Night after night they met, and swam about in the dark, clear lake where such was the prince's gladness that, 
whether the princess's way of looking at things infected him or he was actually getting light-headed. He often fancied that he was swimming in the sky instead of the lake. But when he talked about being in heaven, the princess laughed at him dreadfully. When the moon came, she brought them fresh pleasures. Everything looked strange in her light, with an old, withered, yet unfading newness. When the moon was nearly full, one of their great delights was to dive deep in the water and then, turning round, look up through it at the great blot of light close above them, shimmering and trembling and wavering, spreading and contracting, seeming to melt away and again grow solid. Then they would shoot up through the blot, and lo, there was the moon, far off, clear and steady and cold, and very lovely. At the bottom of the deeper and bluer lake than theirs, as the princess said. The prince soon found out that while in the water, the princess was very like other people, and besides this, she was not so forward in her questions or pert in her replies at sea as on shore. Neither did she laugh so much, and when she did laugh, it was more gently. She seemed altogether more modest and maidenly in the water than out of it. But when the prince, who had really fallen in love when he had fell in the lake, began to talk to her about love, she always turned her head towards him and laughed. After a while, she began to look puzzled, as if she were trying to understand what he meant, but could not, revealing a notion that he meant something but as soon as ever she left the lake, she was so altered that the prince himself said, If I marry her, I see no help for it. We must turn merman and mermaid and go out to sea at once. Chapter 11 Hiss The princess's pleasure in the lake had grown to a passion, and she could scarcely bear to be out of it for an hour. Imagine then her consternation when, diving with the prince one night, a suspicion seized her that the lake was not so deep as it used to be. The prince could not imagine what had happened. She shot to the surface and, without a word, swam at full speed towards the higher side of the lake. He followed, begging to know if she was ill or what was the matter. 
she never turned her head or took the smallest notice of his question. Arrived at the shore, she coasted the rocks with minute inspection, but she was not able to come to a conclusion, for the moon was very small, and so she could not see well. She turned therefore and swam home, without saying a word to explain her conduct to the prince, of whose presence she seemed no longer conscious. He withdrew to his cave in great perplexity and distress. Next day she made many observations, which, alas, strengthened her fears. She saw that the banks were too dry, and that the grass on the shore and the trailing plants on the rocks were withering away. She caused marks to be made along the border, and examined them day after day in all directions of the wind, till at last the horrible idea became a certain fact, that the surface of the lake was slowly sinking. The poor princess nearly went out of her little mind. It was awful to her to see the lake, which she loved more than any living thing, lie dying before her eyes. It sank away, slowly vanishing. The tops of rocks that had never been seen till now began to appear far down in the clear water. Before long they were dry in the sun. It was fearful to think of the mud that would soon lie there, baking and festering, full of lovely creatures dying and ugly creatures coming to life, like the unmaking of a world. And how hot the sun would be without any lake. She could not bear to swim in it any more, and began to pine away. Her life seemed bound up with it, and ever as the lake sank, she pined. People said she would not live an hour after the lake was gone, but she never cried. A proclamation was made to all the kingdom that whosoever should discover the cause of the lake's decrease would be rewarded after a princely fashion. Humdrum and Copykeck applied themselves to their physics and metaphysics, but in vain. Not even they could suggest a cause. Now the fact was that the old princess was at the root of the mischief. When she heard that her niece found more pleasure in the water than anyone else out of it, she went into a rage and cursed herself for her want of foresight. But, said she, I will soon set all right, 
the king and the people shall die of thirst. Their brains shall boil and frizzle in their skulls before I will lose my revenge. And she laughed a ferocious laugh that made the hairs on the back of her black cat stand erect with terror. Then she went to an old chest in the room, and opening it, took out what looked like a piece of dried seaweed. This she threw into a tub of water. Then she threw some powder into the water, and stirred it with her bare arm, muttering over it words of hideous sound and yet more hideous import. Then she set the tub aside and took from the chest a huge bunch of a hundred rusty keys that clattered in her shaking hands. Then she sat down and proceeded to oil them. Before she had finished, out from the tub, the water of which had kept on a slow motion ever since she had ceased stirring it, came the head and half the body of a huge grey snake. But the witch did not look round. It grew out of the tub, waving itself backwards and forwards with a slow, horizontal motion, till it reached the princess when it lay its head upon her shoulder and gave a low hiss in her ear, she started, but with joy, and seeing the head resting on her shoulder, drew it towards her and kissed it. Then she drew it all out of the tub and wound it round her body. It was one of those dreadful creatures which few have ever beheld, the white snakes of darkness. Then she took the keys and went down to her cellar, and as she unlocked the door she said to herself, This is worth living for. Locking the door behind her, she descended a few steps into the cellar, and crossing it, unlocked another door in a dark, narrow passage. She locked this also behind her and ascended a few more steps. If anyone had followed the witch princess, he would have heard her unlock exactly one hundred doors and ascend a few steps after locking each When she had unlocked the last, she entered a vast cave, the roof of which was supported by huge natural pillars of rock. Now this roof was the underside of the bottom of the lake. She then untwined the snake from her body and held it by the tail above her. The hideous creature stretched up its head towards the roof of the cabin, which it was just able to reach. 
it then began to move its head backwards and forwards with a slow, oscillating motion, as if looking for something. At the same moment the witch began to walk round and round the cavern, coming nearer to the centre every circuit. While the head of the snake described the same path over the roof that she did over the floor, for she kept holding it up, and still it kept slowly oscillating. Round and round the cavern they went, ever lessening the circuit, till at last the snake made a sudden dart and clung to the roof with its mouth. That's right, my beauty, cried the princess. Drain it dry. She let it go, left it hanging, and sat down on a great stone. With her black cat, which had followed her all round the cave by her side. Then she began to knit and mutter awful words. The snake hung like a huge leech, sucking at the stone. The cat stood with his back arched and his tail like a piece of cable, looking up at the snake and the old woman sat and knitted and muttered. Seven days and seven nights they remained thus, when suddenly the serpent dropped from the roof as if exhausted and shriveled up until it was again like a piece of seaweed. The witch started to her feet, picking it up, put it in her pocket and looked up at the roof. One drop of water was trembling on the spot where the snake had been sucking. As soon as she saw that, she turned and fled, followed by her cat. Shutting the door in a terrible hurry, she locked it, and having muttered some frightful words, sped to the next, which also she locked and muttered over, and so with all the hundred doors, till she arrived in her own cellar. Then she sat down on the floor ready to faint, but listening with malicious delight to the rushing of the water, which she could hear distinctly through all hundred doors. But this was not enough. Now that she had tasted revenge, she lost her patience. Without further measures, the lake would be too long in disappearing So the next night, with the last shred of the dying old moon rising, she took some of the water in which she had revived the snake, put it in a bottle, and set out, accompanied by her cat. Before morning she had made the entire circuit of the lake, muttering fearful words as she crossed every stream, and casting into it 
some of the water out of the bottle. When she had finished the circuit, she muttered yet again and flung a handful of water towards the moon. Thereupon, every spring in the country ceased to throb and bubble, dying away like the pulse of a dying man. The next day there was no sound of falling water to be heard along the borders of the lake. The very courses were dry, and the mountains showed no silvery streaks down their sides, and not alone had the fountains of Mother Earth ceased to flow, for all the babies throughout the country were crying dreadfully, only without tears. <laughs>